Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery. Uh, this week's podcast is out on the road in northwestern Alberta, and we're hunting for elk with Brad Kircher of Brad Kircher Outfitting and Guiding. Whole different experience up here hunting in the boreal forest. Uh, really thick habitat where shots can be as close as five or 10 yards at um, bulls that are screaming their head off. Super exciting experience. And, you know, we talk all the time about how incredible Lancaster archery is as far as getting ready for hunting season. That's uh, not only for your local hunting season, but whether you're traveling to another state or even another province to hunt for um, big game such as elk, pronghorns, mule deer, moose. And, you know, Lancaster Archery Supply has so many options for bow hunting season, from bows and crossbows to all your accessories, um, apparel. Um, they have literally 40 or 50,000 different things they offer. And the reason I mentioned that is, you know, as I was preparing for this elk hunt here in Alberta, I had been getting ready literally for weeks and I thought I had everything covered. Um, I thought I had all my accessories, all my clothing, case I needed for travel, good pair of boots, uh, obviously my Hoyt bow, my Easton arrows, um, my muzzy broadheads. I was positive I had everything. Well, happened that I had a really old bow sling, a really old bow sling, and it really didn't do the job. We were hunting some thick cover. It was hard to carry the bow by hand. Um, the first day I used it, I was brushing against brush and twigs and all these different things, and I realized I should have had a more modern bow sling. You know, you live and learn. You know, you try to prepare as best you can. You don't think of every single thing. Um, but uh, hunting up here with Brad, he had a great Primos bow sling with his uh, neoprene design that you could pull over and protect your cams and your strings. And it would pop off in an instant if you need to get ready for a shot, if you had a bull coming in. So um, I'm looking to get one of those when I return. But it, it just reminded me that, you know, if you're looking for any type of bow hunting product or accessory, you really want to check out Lancaster Archery Supply. You know, they've been presenting the podcast with us now for the past couple of years, an excellent resource. Um, for all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. They've got the gear, they've got the knowledge, and they've got the passion. Now, stay with us, everybody, as we jump into hunting for elk in northwestern Alberta. As we're recording this episode, we're actually in northwestern Alberta, hunting elk with the bow. Um, super excited. Uh, we were invited up by Brad Kircher. Brad, hello. Hello. Now, you've been an elk guide for how many years? Uh, for 10 years now. 10 years. And uh, I have to ask you, uh, I saw somewhere that you are called the bush elf. You have a hat on. And tell me a story about like sort of how that came to be. Well... When we're out in the bush, it's uh, it's pretty tough to hear when you're wearing these little beanies. So I always just pull my ears out and they end up facing forward and 
Yeah. I just, uh, everybody started calling me the bush elf because of my ears and they're not exactly small. So, yeah. Now here's the real thing. I think you're called the bush elf because you have to work some magic up here to put people on elk. Uh, this is a really special area. I mean, when people think of hunting elk, they think of hunting in the Rocky Mountains or the foothills. They do. When you and I were talking, this is a totally different experience up here. You're, not, you're nowhere near the mountains, but you're in your own special type of habitat. So uh, let's start there. Talk a little bit about uh, what it's like to hunt in this boreal forest up here for elk. Yeah, it is a unique area because uh, originally the reason that uh, – we have hills out here is when the glaciers retreated, they ended up pushing the formation up and they're not truly hills. They're actually glacier ridges. And, uh, on top of that, the, the rivers and the creeks that are out here, it ends up being quite steep and getting down into them. And it's just great, diverse forest. We've got pines, we've got spruce, we've got alders, we've got cottonwoods, we've got poplars, and it's all mixed together. And it's actually quite thick. Yeah, and you know, as I was practicing for this trip, I was thinking 30, 40 yards, maybe further, uh, but an opportunity for a good open shot. First thing we did when we arrived here, and it was a long plane flight to get from where I live in Pennsylvania up here, we got here and you're like, Mark, make sure you practice at 20, 15, 10, and even five yards. But here's the catch. You've got to be able to thread that arrow through like a needle because if it's so thick here, you had me shooting through branches and brush and twigs. And I thought for sure, man, the first arrow I, I fling is going to go flying out hitting when you're target. So you caught me off guard a little bit because it's that thick. But but let's get into that a little bit. I mean, you have that unique scenario where you're you're hunting in the timber. You're, you're not hunting the field edges. You're not hunting wide open expanses. That's right. And uh, you do actually, when you said you have to thread the eye of a needle there, you do. You have to find your holes and you have to get used to the way your arrow flies because it is a really close quarters. When you're calling them in, they can't see you, you can't see them. You can hear them. You can see the tops of the trees going when they're when they're raking on the trees, but you have to be able to see a hole and know that your arrow is gonna make it through the hole, whether it's shooting high or low. And uh, we have to set you up for some scenarios so you can practice that. And it is tough. Like, I mean, it's not, a, it's not an easy hunt when it comes to uh, trying to get a clear shot. There's the odd place where you get up into the poplar uh, thickets there, where you might be able to reach out to 35, 40 yards. And you know, it's the first time we really saw that was this morning and we're in day four here of the hunt. And we were walking through some areas where, we're, you know, you had some hardwoods and things like that. And you look around like, oh, wow, this is pretty open. And you still realize you can't see more than 50, 60 yards in any direction. Yeah, top end, yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm curious. When you have people come up and they want to hunt with the bow, how do they react to that when you say you need to be shooting this way? Uh, well, they're very hesitant to begin with. I mean, that's that's not a shot that normally you would uh, even be entertaining because it is a tight little spot that you want to thread that through, right? So it does take a little bit of practice and, and you have to really understand your bow. Um, the flatter shooting of the arrow is, the, the easier it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're going to take a step back. The reason um, we've all come together here um, is... You and I were talking about two years ago, and um, you said, I'd love to have you up. One caveat, we want to make sure we do something with veterans. And so um, we're going to introduce you to Jeremiah in just a second. But you do a lot with veterans as far as your hunting opportunities, don't you? Why is that so important? Uh, to me, it's just the, the ultimate sacrifice that everybody has laid on the line as far as the veterans and, and the service people that, uh, that are out there. Um, I have a great appreciation for them. They have 
really struggled with a lot of the things that they've seen and encountered and lived through. And uh, if I can help them out in any way, shape or form, I want to be able to make that happen. Well, thank you so much for that. And that's how I had a chance to meet Jeremiah. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Good. And, um, you know, we got to talking and you used to do some filming for Bow Hunter Television, if I'm correct. So that is correct for, yeah. for our, our sister media outlet. And we got to talking and we connected with Brad and it just seemed to be a win, win, win for everybody. But um, you have a pretty unique story. You've been in the military most of your life. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going to let you talk about your story a little bit. And you can go into it as deep as you like. But uh, let's talk about how you got into the military. And um, first, let's start with how long you've been hunting and whether you, you know, is bow hunting a big passion for you. Yeah, actually, um, first started hunting, I guess you could say when I was about 10 years old. So about 38, almost 40 years ago now. Um, and so I've, I've loved it, got into it because of my grandfather, we first were just wing shooters, you know, shooting quail pheasant, things like that in Kansas. Of course, you don't want to live in Kansas too long before you start pursuing what's really big there. And that's the deer. So, uh, I got into archery and, uh, just loved it from the get go. And I've tried to shoot most everything I can with that. Um, had a lot of hunts for elk with archery that have not gone as well. So when I was approached about this, I was overly joyed. I was like, yeah, let's give this a, a go. Cause I want to get my first elk with a bow and this would be a phenomenal place to do it at. Um, talking about my military service, I can tell you, I've been in about 18 and a half years. Um, so I've actually got my retirement paperwork in thoroughly thrilled about that. Um, I serve as an army, active duty army chaplain, and uh, currently stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I've had um, one tour overseas in Iraq. Mm -hmm. While I was there, I was with a group of uh, special operators. Um, I was their chaplain serving with them. We went out and kind of blasted a cache of weapons in place one time against a kind of a, a bomb shelter type thing that we saw. And what happened was in the blast, there was a kind of an awkwardly colored hue to the smoke. Uh, most of us were coughing and stuff after that. Didn't think much of it. Um, later on, each one of us would be medically evacuated out of country. Um, each of us with a cancer from that day. And uh, the other three men did not survive the cancer. It was a massive, awkward type of a melanoma cancer. It grew to the size of about a cantaloupe off of my chest in about only two weeks. And made it to where I couldn't even put my arm down. So when they got me to Germany to relieve the pressure, said, sorry, this thing's growing so rapid. It swallowed up your brachial, your carotid. It went up my chest, my right arm, my neck, and into my head. And they said, "Uh, you got six months. And so then I went to Walter Reed at Washington, D.C. Second surgery, same result. Third surgery I did at Johns Hopkins. That was what set me apart from the other three gentlemen as I went outside of the Army's care. And when I went to uh, Johns Hopkins, they were able to do a rather massive, lengthy surgery. But at the end result was after chemo, radiation, three surgeries that I was declared cancer free with dilemmas, which you've learned about on this trip. But pec muscles severed in half. I got a little scar across my neck. Most of you all noticed up here. But um, man, I love to still pull the bow back. It's a little bit more work, but in it still gets back there and I'm willing to let him fly when I can. So, yeah. And I have to say you get around incredibly well. We're actually walking probably seven to 10 miles a day. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're talking a little bit about the habitat right here. It's, it's not like hunting in the Rockies, but there are some steep valleys and basins and stuff like that. And, 
uh, last night you took us up one that was like a, almost like a sheer cliff, except it really was a hill. Um, no game trails on it. We had to get out because it was getting dark, but we went straight up. So, um, you know, I think a big thing is when you come hunting up here, you do have to be in some decent shape. You do. <clears throat> you do have to be in good shape because uh, there's a lot of high stepping out there. There's a lot of deadfall out there and just picking your legs up and, and getting out of the grass and back into the grass. I mean, you want to be able to be as stealthy as possible and, you know, you do have to be in good shape. I mean, to do seven and ten to 10 miles a day and you're high stepping lots, uh, it takes some effort and you're tired at the end of the day. You're going to sleep well. Yeah. And um, you're talking about a six day hunt here. So you're going to yeah. be putting on the miles by the end of the weekend. Uh, yeah. Um, now, uh, up here in uh, Alberta, at least in your area, when does the archery season for elk begin? So the archery season uh, for elk begins August 25th. And it goes uh, right till September 17th. And then again, you can still use your archery equipment right till the end of November, but it does turn over into uh, rifle at uh, on the 17th. And I'm assuming the action for elk builds as the rut approaches? It does, yeah. Typically speaking, uh, that first week in September is pretty good. And then the second week in September gets to even a little bit more lit up. And then uh, right towards the end of the second week and the beginning of the third is usually prime rut. And then uh, once rifle season starts up, you know, there's a, a lot more noise out there, a lot more people. And then it's, it gets even more challenging. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we've got a really good sampling of what's out here. I had a, a bull come in. We walked up on a bull, a couple cows yesterday, um, probably came to about 35 yards. Um looking for something maybe a little bigger, didn't have a perfectly clear shot opportunity. So we let him walk, hoping for uh, something else as the week goes on here. But uh, I, I think it was pretty fascinating. Um, you must have a really good gut feeling or an intuition because something that stuck out for me this whole week is we hiked in probably a mile from the road and we just walked past a game trail. Literally, I think you took two steps. All of a sudden you stopped, got out your phone, checked something, made a quick left, and said, we're going this way. Yeah. Well, it wasn't 300 yards when we encountered those animals. Yeah, I've been pretty fortunate to listen to my intuition. And uh, thank goodness it's worked out for me. Yeah, absolutely. It was just, I was like one of those aha moments for me. I was like, oh, wow. And, um, you know, you're hunting up here. You uh, hunt not only elk, but you know, talk about your operation in general. You, you do a wide variety of hunts for almost any interest. And it's actually for archery or for firearm. True. Uh, primarily for archery, though, uh, we we started out as uh, just elk, and then I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to acquire some uh, mule deer tags, as well as some archery moose tags, and uh, some whitetail tags. And we just uh, recently, it was this year, that we uh, started our archery mule deer hunts, and yeah. great success. Yeah, and, and, you know, we should mention, obviously, there's a chance to hunt uh, mule deer and velvet. Yeah, 100%, yeah. And they're good quality deer, like, you know, they're... We're shooting for a 165 uh, type style for archery plus. We have lots in the you know 170s, 180s, and you know 200 inch out there too. Yeah, and I want to add quickly. Um, we're approaching mid September here, and we saw a couple bucks uh, the other night, and they were actually still in velvet. So if you're looking for a unique hunt, you want to get a mule deer in velvet. This is a great place, and, and it's interesting. I come from Pennsylvania, where if a deer sees you and the deer is 25 yards off the road, no self-respecting deer stands around. Up here, these things are just looking at us. Now, obviously, it's hunting, and it's not going to be that easy. When you come up here, they're probably not going to stand and look at you. But I was just blown away how these deer look at you when you go by yeah. in the archery season. Yeah, even the elk sometimes do that. Yeah. So not, not lately, but <laughs> <laughs> so 
So you have some nice bowls up here. I mean, it's certainly possible to get a a 300 plus inch or a 350, but talk a little bit about the range as far as like the yeah, sure. the size of the antlers. But then also, am I right? Are the bodies on these elk bigger yeah. than other places? They're absolutely huge uh, for body wise out here. Um, <clears throat> I would say the average antler size is that, that we take is between that 240 and 300 inch range. But uh, we do have some 320s, 330s, 340s, 350s. Uh, and we have we do take them occasionally. Uh, they're not as easy to get uh, with this thick timber out here. You get to see them lots, and they ghost you, and you see the tops of their antlers, and then there's see you later. But <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, and that is one of the things you have to get used to. You you might see the animal in close quarters. Getting a shot's going to be another thing because yeah. you really do have to um, thread that arrow through and make sure you can get a good shot in a really small window. Yeah, and uh, you know. You might only be able to see bits and pieces in the animal and things like that. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you thought of the hunting the first few days? Talk about the experience of it. Some of the things I was asked on camera about that, and I, I think back to it now and I laugh a little because I, I was initially asked, what do I think of the train? And I said on camera, hey, if you're looking for easy walking out here, you know, different from walking up the Colorado Rockies or something like that, it's, it's a great place to come. That's because... First day I and first morning, we didn't really get to experience things the way that they would unfold later. So now if I could take that one back, I'd probably say, no, it's it's still got its very steep hills. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's it's there's some similarities to Alaska. If you've ever been there, um, the muskeg, the kind of thick, spongy kind of ground. I've been across a couple areas like that. Plus, you know, up there, it's always raining. So you get the moist areas and they've got the creek beds and areas around here that are like that, that can suck your boot out or whatever. So, uh, yeah, there's, and then there's a lot of deadfall I've noticed too, that we always walk over and, and under, and there's a lot more prickly things. And I figured Texas only had that, but apparently they got the prickly things here too. So, yeah. uh, other than all that, I'd say my experience though, has been phenomenally one more wonderful than like an Idaho and Colorado hunt. Cause I, I tell you, trying to climb 1500 feet, 2000 feet, a lot different than here. And it felt, felt like this was definitely much more achievable. I'm more motivated. I'm ready to go when I get to the top of most of these hills, like let's keep this thing going, you know? So. Yeah. And, and I think the way I would assess it is you really have opportunities if somebody's an older bow hunter, maybe can't get around as well, yeah. or, um, somebody has, uh, mobility issues you can accommodate them there's some places on the flats or along the farmlands where it's really pretty easy walking true but you can have the most rugged experience you want here as well we were in a hollow last night and we, we were sort of chuckling it was like uh we got down to the bottom you walk straight down this mountain you're in the bottom and it was eerie it was just the spruce yeah. and the pines and actually you found that's funny you found a deadhead down there you found a nice bowling yeah we did found a nice little six by five down there but it was spooky down there yeah. yeah. So there's all types of terrain, all types of experiences up here. Now, um, you hunt some private land. We but do. I think most of your hunting is done on public land. So you have some challenges down there, especially as the archery pressure builds. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about a little bit about giving you know our audience a glimpse into your techniques because you do things a little differently. Yeah, we do. So uh, first and foremost, when you get a lot of other hunters in there, you got to respect them. So if they're down there and you can hear that they're calling in on a bull and the bull's answering them back, just back out, go find yourself another spot. Uh, I try to do that so that they do that for me. doesn't always work out that way, but 
we try to do that. Um, as far as the technique goes, make sure you get up early in the morning, get out there, get your spot, sit there and wait for it, do your thing, and uh, just be respectful for everybody else that's out there too. That's the key message, I think. Yeah, well, one thing when the pressure builds and these bulls are being called to, they got a little quiet this week. They do, they shut down. You mentioned yeah. you change your tactics a little bit. What do you try to do? I try to soft talk them quite a bit more and do a little bit more cow calling. Don't try to get uh, the lo big locate blast them out there, the big locate bugles. Just kind of dumb it down a little bit, make it soft, and then they'll they're more likely to soft talk you back. But you got to be in tight to them too. So it's a little more difficult. You have to walk slower, take your time, really try not to bump them too much, just ease up in there. Yeah. So I mean, I'd like to say I think the elk hunting up here is really spectacular, but you. you you're not going to be glassing vast expanses, but I haven't used my binoculars um, at all, really, and because you're in such close confines. So you're going to see elk by the handful in most of the places you're at rather than by the dozen. But that's because you're in such thick, tight cover. But then you have the chance to get a bull screaming its head off at literally 10 yards. And I'm you sure you've seen some crazy crazy stuff over the years when that happens yeah you can actually feel it like when it hits you when they're bugling right at you within six seven yards it's like whoo what's your best close-up story you ever had like what's the closest shot you ever had somebody get it a so i had another veteran up this was uh probably seven years ago now and uh, i was able to call a bull in i placed him just at the right spot bull walked right in front of him and literally it was one yard there was just enough time for that arrow to come off the string and into the animal. You got yeah, it. I'll be the second veteran if you want to do that again. Repeat that. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to do our best. That's pretty That's awesome. Right, yeah. They're pretty quiet right now, but they'll get fired up again. That's why we make our, our hunt six days long. Yeah. I mean, typically speaking, they don't shut up or shut down for more than two, maybe three days, and then they'll fire right back up. We're yeah. coming into prime rut here. There's just no way that they can help themselves. Yeah. So we're counting. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the elk. I probably should ask you, this doesn't seem like an area that traditionally was historical elk habitat. Am I right? Were they always here or how did they get here? Well, you are right, Mark. And back in 1945 is when they first started to introduce elk to this area. And I do believe that they came from the Aha Tinda area is where they originally originated from. So they introduced some of the population, obviously grew over time. When did the elk hunting start get really good here? uh not until the late 80s that's really mm -hmm. when it started to take off it took that long to establish the herd and then all of a sudden they really started replicating themselves pretty quickly and then they uh they came out with the the tags and it's actually been pretty phenomenal elk hunting up here we have great numbers yeah and and not only does brad have a great establishment here wonderful accommodations great food margo does the cooking it's absolutely amazing delicious um the nice thing is when you work with an outfitter in Alberta, you can just help your clients get the tag. You're going to get a bull tag. Yeah. And so that's nice because, you know, a lot of places we hunt in the United States, wherever you got to put in for a draw. And sometimes it's luck of the draw. Sometimes you got to build up preference points. But here, if you want to come up hunting with Brad, you can just reach out to him, work out your um, dates, and then he'll have an elk tag, a bull tag waiting for you. hundred percent. We buy our allocations. We have to renew them every year. And uh, once you purchase them they're your allocations yeah and so so that's great to know because there, there's sometimes a lot of stuff you have to do behind the scenes to make an open possible and that's even if it's a do-it-yourself hunt so this is that's really nice yeah 
Um, and it is up here, at least where we're hunting, three points to one side. So, you know, um, you're certainly going to see spikes and things like that. But if you take an elk, it's going to be pretty nice, pretty pretty good chance of getting a close shot. It's just an exciting experience. Um, now, let's ask you a little bit. I know you hunt. Yep. I know you love to fish. You were telling me the other day that uh, 50 pound Lakers is your thing. You showed us some monster. I don't know if we have any of walleye, like 25, 30 pounders. Oh, there's one out of there. But talk about how you got into hunting. And I think you told me you really love bow hunting. That's your thing. Yeah. Well, much like yourself, Jeremiah, is, uh, my grandpa got me into it, right? <laughs> so my dad, he worked in the oil patch and his whole life. And my grandpa kind of took me under his wing and make sure you get your chores, chores done first. And then we get to go and do something. So. Yeah, he got me into hunting. We used to drive around. We used to push a lot of bush in, in southern Alberta, and and uh, that's how we did our most of our hunting was was deer drives, and uh, it just stuck with me. And I just and then the chickens too. We shot a lot of a lot of chickens in our days, mm-hmm. and I just uh, I couldn't put it away, and I never stopped doing it. My my whole life I've been either hunting or fishing on my days off, or taking the kids right from the time they were three four years old. Yeah, and by chickens you mean. Grouse. Yeah, I do. Yes. So, so, Sharp tails as well as uh, rough grouse. I've never seen this many grouse standing on the side of the road that we have driving around up here. Uh, it's it, by the dozens, literally by the dozens. And grouse season is open and they still look at you. Yep. You're like, hi, what? It's pretty. So it's pretty fascinating experience <laughs> to see that many birds standing yeah. around when they easily could be on the dinner table. It's the best I've seen in 10 years. Yeah, I, actually, I understand that we may have grouse to eat later in the week because uh, some of the guys have been out there. Uh, some of your guides who aren't hunting this week have been trying to round up a few for the dinner table. That's right. So you'll get to try some rough grouse from Alberta. Uh, exciting. I've, like never, I've never eaten. I've had quail. I've had a lot of different stuff. Ducks, pheasant. <clears throat> I've never had grouse. Have you? I've not had grouse, no. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're going to get a chance to try that. Now, um, you know, I think I have to ask you, just like when I reached out to you and we were chatting, what's the first thing you try to tell a person about hunting up here because it is so different. I mean, obviously they're going to come with some questions and they may have some, even some preconceived notions about elk hunting, but you obviously have to share a lot with them. So what do you convey? Uh, just that you're going to, it's going to be a very unique hunt. Uh, if you've ever hunted elk before, and most of the people that, that have come here have elk, hunted elk before, but it's all primarily in the mountains, right? Or the foothills. Uh, it's going to be quite a bit different, and it is different. Like I've seen and hunted uh, in southern Alberta along the foothills and in the mountains, and this is just a unique area. Um, you get better weather. You don't have to deal with the elevation because uh, the weather down in the mountains, it comes and goes so quickly. Here, at least, you know, you can bank on what the day is going to be like. Yeah, and I don't know if this is typical or atypical, but I will tell you we've had um, – really nice weather this week and most of the days temperature's been right around 68 70 maybe a little warmer nights are cool in the 40s but it's beautiful um weather for hunting i mean it's not too cold get a little warm but i mean it's it's really good and you told me that really doesn't impact the animals it's as the rut is approaching it's it doesn't seem to shut them down no they can't help it they they have to do it it's just a, a matter of the light right once the sun starts to dwindle every day and we lose three to four minutes every single day at this time of the year. So it just triggers them and they have no choice but to, to continue. We've had it when we were 32 degrees. So it'd be about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's that still happens. Yeah. No. Wow. It, it, that's interesting. Cause you know, a lot of times when you think when the rut comes in for white tailed deer, 
you get a really warm spell. It'll shut them down, or at least it'll push them into only going about uh, in the evening. Temperatures can affect deer pretty much, but it doesn't seem like it has the same kind of impact. No. You know, um, so um, you have so much land that you try to cover when you're elk hunting. And like I said, we've been from the farmland fringes to deep in the mountains. How do you try to pick your game plan for a week when you have people coming? Because obviously so many factors you have to incorporate. I, I, I saw a couple of times while we were walking, you have a really great app that you use to help you map out what you're doing and all your waypoints and things like that. But there must be a lot of strategy that goes in because you have people coming in for say five, six weeks. You want to give them all the best chance. And, and you told me your goal is to have multiple shooting opportunities when you come in, at least for archery season. Yes. How do you put that puzzle together? So we do a lot of pre-scouting too. So we'll get out there in July and we'll start hanging some cameras just to find the bulls the way we can see them because you can get the all the bulls you want on camera in July and August, but as soon as they strip the velvet off, they just disperse and they go all over. So you want to find big areas that have a lot of cows. So you start to set your cameras up, find the cows, find the cows, find the cows, and stick with it. Once you've got those marked out and you know where the cows are, just keep going around in a circuit trying to figure out if the bulls are looking at. And they will find them and they'll be there. Yeah, and I, I know you must have some of your cameras over you know, the wallows, but also on, I would call them springs. You might call them licks up here. Yeah. But they're probably good hubs for activity, especially one of the things I will say, it's incredibly dry up here. You think it wouldn't be, but at least at this time of year, very dry. They have what I would call, or what we call in the United States washes, not a lot of creeks and streams and rivers that run year round in the right in this immediate area. It's true. Yeah. Unless you get heavy rain. So I'm sure those watering areas sort of concentrate the wildlife activity. They do. And the elk have to water every day several times. So, I mean, they're, they're good areas to hang around. There's lots of them out there. So it's really hard to say that you're just going to sit one or the other, but uh, absolutely be in the area. Um, they will be hitting them for sure. Yeah. Now, what, if you don't mind me asking, putting you in a spot, what's your success rate when you look at elk season as a whole? My understanding is you have pretty good success for hunting free ranging wild elk absolutely uh two years ago we had a hundred percent success rate uh last year we had a 65 percent success rate so i would say it ranges right between the 65 and 80 percent typically uh, we had an exceptional year when we got 100 like it was incredible the hunters just every time they, an animal come in front of them they it was in the open and they got the shot right yeah and, and you guys seen out there it's it's pretty easy it's inches and angles out there oh yeah like you're standing two feet over, you don't have a shot. One foot back, oh, there it is. And we can't stress that enough. You are literally talking about shots 20 yards and under, sometimes 10 and under, but you may not even have a complete sight picture of the animal where you can thread your shot through. And as many as you had people knock them dead, you have people, you told me, I think one guy at like six yards missed a shot. Absolutely. So Most of that was excitement though. Yeah, <laughs> but that's just incredible. Now, what's the most surprising thing? like? What was the thing that really surprised you when you got here and started hunting? Anything maybe that you didn't expect? Um, yeah, I think probably for me it was the sounds. Uh, you know, after hearing elk for several years. That's a good years, point, yeah. I, I think there's there's a different sound that they make up here. So on a couple occasions I was educated about them, probably more than that if I was really counting. But one was first Brad here, uh, sat around the fireplace on night one, I think it was, and educated me. Uh, on some of the sounds that I was going to hear that were different than what I've heard elsewhere. True to his word, I also saw it play out on the video for yours, 
when that elk was walking off, I asked them to re replay that video because I was like, <laughs> did you hear that thing? He was doing what you called a bark, which many of you may have heard that before, but a bark, if I'm saying that to you and you're hearing this and thinking, I know what a bark is. It's one solid syllable and they just bark hard and very, very loud, almost like a chirp in a way. It's it screams. Yeah. But this one was doing what you called a bark. And I think if I'd heard it in the woods, I might have thought it was somebody's dog. I, it was that weird. Yeah. So we've different heard sounds. Pretty unique sounds. Like uh, we've heard, heard them sound like an owl, just hooing. Ooh. Really? Ooh. And it's like, is that an elk? We've experienced it enough times. It's like, yeah, no, that's an elk. Wow. Yeah. And I don't mind. Uh, this is my first time elk hunting. For, for those listening, everybody knows that's my first elk trip. I've hunted moose and bear and deer, but uh, so that barking sound, what I call barking sound, what is that? What's that indicative of? Uh, two things, actually. One of it's a, it's an alarm, and if it's coming from a female, then absolutely, it's letting the, everybody know what's going on. But uh, often, too, when a male does it, he'll bark at another male that's bugling or, you know, wants to challenge him. He'll bark at them and then bugle right away, and it's uh, kind of letting you know that he's a little worked up. Hmm. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, he didn't even actually um, respond to the bugle or, or bugle. No, he didn't. Own. He wasn't really interested in the bugle at all. He was more interested in, in raking the antler on the tree and the, the cow calls. Yeah, and we caught up with him a few minutes later and um, had a potential shot opportunity before they walked off. So that was, I was thrilled. That was my first opportunity to um, stare down an elk in the wild while I was hunting. So thank you very much for that. I also want to quickly thank the uh, Alberta Professional Outfitters. So sorry, they, they hooked you and I up. Yeah couple years ago great group and um everything's been wonderful here and uh just an incredible experience we still have a couple of days to hunt yet but uh um thank you so much for everything well you're very welcome and thank you guys yeah before we wrap yeah, this up thank you what haven't i touched on what else about what you do i think maybe your philosophy would be a good thing because you're really people oriented customer focused you it just, that was one thing that struck me from the very first time you and I spoke. Yeah, I want to make friends more than anything. It's not about uh, running clients through the through the camp. It's more about getting a bond, making a relationship, making sure that those people come back and see you again. Yeah. And, and, and building that memory that you get to share together. Because when you get an elk that comes in and it's screaming at you at eight yards, there's a memory in your mind that's never going to go away. Mm. And it literally is imprinted in your mind. Well, it is for me anyway. Yeah. And, you know, you, you are a smaller operation, so you really can cater to your hunters or your clients. needs. That's one yeah. thing I really loved. You, you know, you, your son is actually one of your guides. Kelly's a great guy. You, did you tell me you've been calling since he's like 10 or 12 years old? Yeah. When he was 10 years old, he used to bugle and, and do all kinds of elk calls. And he never used a reed or a bugle tube or nothing. Mm. But, uh, then he reached maturity and it all changed. Mm. Yeah, so you have a couple of guides. You work really hard to put your clients on on elk, or if they're hunting deer or moose or whatever. Yeah, and um, it, it's a, a great setup they have here, um, top notch from top to bottom. So, and one more thing I want to sure. add too is uh, like I mean, people that uh, have disabilities and whatnot. Like you said, we have different techniques that we can use too, right? There's certain areas that we can uh, set up tree stands and blinds and overlicks for people who who can't do a lot of walking. Yeah, and we've touched on that a little bit, a couple of times, a little, bit. but a little bit. So let's talk about that a little further. So uh, because I thought that was fascinating, and I actually asked you that at one point because you don't see a lot of 
television shows. You don't even see a lot on social media about hunting from a stand setup. But, um, you know, I'm assuming that you have the ability to do that if somebody really is can't get around too well. Or, yeah. If so, so how do you hone in on those? How do you hone in on those locations? So what we like to do is we like to find a mineral lick, and what I mean mineral lick is you'd be able to see a sheen on top of the water as mm -hmm. it's coming out of the hill. Then you know that there's more than just water coming out of there. And then they like to focus on that in the fall a lot. Um, I don't know if it helps their digestion or what it is, but they seem to just love it. Uh, so we'll set up a tree stand within good shooting range, 17, 20 yards. And uh, we'll, we'll, we're allowed to use ATVs here uh, throughout the whole day. It used to be just at noon, but now they've incorporated it to be throughout the whole day. So we can always give the client a ride in, get up in the stand, give them a good lunch, head back out. And if somebody was interested in tree stand hunting for elk, uh, stand hunting, does something where they hunt the morning and the evening? Do you sometimes have them sit all day? Like, what's the elk activity like in those more well, secluded areas? at this time of the year, and we'd, we'd be over wallows as well, at this time of the year, you're going to see them throughout the day. They'll, they'll get on their feet. They'll come for water. Yeah. Like, they, they really need their water. So it's a, it's a bang. Yeah. And, you know, we're getting close to wrapped up here, and then you brought up another great point since we're talking about this. You, I think it was day two, we went into an area. Um, we were hunting some flat land just off the farmland. We had seen a really nice bull out in the field at first. It was on private property, but you knew it would probably head back into the forest. And we went into a quarter. We saw, I think, a, a spike that morning. Yeah. But I'd never been anywhere, deer hunting anywhere, where I saw that much concentrated sign. You literally couldn't avoid looking at it. Rubs, what we would call scrapes for deer. And uh, it was just incredible. But how do you try to hunt those? core areas without pushing the bull indoor for cows because that's got to be hard not yeah. to push those animals out well it is and you just got to ease into it make sure the wind's in your favor and and try not to drive them out of there like when you when you're going through there you don't speed through it just take your time yeah and as a matter of fact when we were waiting on that spike to move out, we waited a pretty long time for before it walked off yeah as to not push it out of the air or have it signal to the other animals that we were in there. So, yep. you know, that, that we're being very cautious in there, but I just, I had a remark on that because I'd never seen that much sign for anything in all my years of hunting it was that concentrated. Yeah, you, You'd turn your head and there was a rub, fresh rub, or you'd walk and you'd just see the, the game trails in spots, especially where like two or three trails converge. I'd never seen anything like that. It was more like walking paths, quite honestly. And not all of it's like that. It's hard walking here. Yeah, it is. But when you jump on trails like that, you can be just as quiet as they can. It's amazing how they can walk through that timber where you have to make as much noise as it sounds like a freight train coming through there. And they go through it like it's on their tippy toes and they don't make a sound. Yeah. A thousand pound animal. Yeah. Doing that. Yeah. And what did you think when when you were out hunting? I mean, obviously you came across a couple spots like that as well. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, what I'd like to give kudos to is their guides and that, I mean, my first two days alone, we were hearing them run off. Because it was so thick, we couldn't see him. We got close to him. But that just told me this much. Even though we're not hearing him, your guides knew where to put me to where we were getting in places where I was. I was seeing all this kind of sun. I keep joking with them and saying, man, you guys take me places. There's no sun. But there's always <laughs> there's always <laughs> more sun that, like he said, you can't not see it. Yeah. So all joking aside, they've put us on the right areas with no help from the elk to find them. Uh, it's been impressive that way. And today was no different sign everywhere. So 
they're here. There's a lot of them. Um, and I just can't wait to put one on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited for you guys to get back out there and get it done. So. Oh, yeah. We'll wrap up with this question. You've been doing this for over 10 years. You've been hunting for a long time. What's your favorite elk hunting memory that you have? My very second elk um, that I took myself. I was with my father and uh, we were walking through the bush and I seen a big white tail shed and I picked up the shed. We walked down the timber, we heard one bugling and uh, we got into those alder thickets, which I'm sure you're familiar with now. Yeah. And they're real nice places <laughs> to be. Got into those alder thickets <laughs> and he wouldn't come in. He wouldn't come in, wouldn't come in. So I just took that antler and I rubbed it on the tree and he comes shooting inside there and he was within six yards, bugled straight at me, but didn't see me. Wow. And my gun was laying on the ground because I had an antler in my hand. Yeah, typically. But that, from that day forward, I realized how, how beneficial that could be as a, hmm. as a tool. So I've always packed one with me, not during rifle season, only during archery season. Wow. Yep. And it's, uh, it's been my go-to. For, uh, for getting them to commit. So. Yeah, I mean, some of the techniques you're showing us are just, you know, you really go above and beyond, especially now you have to work a little of your bush elf magic to uh, get them to respond when they get, when they quiet down a little bit from the pressure. I mean, yeah. Well, hopefully we can get them uh, to do a little bit more talking and get a little more aggressive here in the next couple of days. Yeah, well, we have a, a couple more days to hunt. Thank you so much for everything. My pleasure. Everybody, thanks for, for joining us. If you're looking for a really unique elk hunting experience, looking for something different than hunting in, say, the Rocky Mountains, um, Alberta could be one of the best kept secrets in elk hunting. Brad, been doing it for a long time, incredible guide. You can check him out on Facebook. And um, we'll see you next time on the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.